All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from the borough of Queens in New York City on this, the ninth day of March, 2021. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you each and every week that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for my weekly and monthly newsletter at uh, miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here during normal work hours in New York City at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. would also like to encourage uh, all of you to consider uh, checking out Chen Lin's work, uh, Chen Lin, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling, especially if you're interested in the biotech sector. Uh, energy sector as well as the precious metal sector. Chen Lin has an expertise in all of those areas. Uh, so it's chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com to consider signing up for Chen's letter. And uh, I also want to encourage you to send along any comments you might have about this show, positive or negative or somewhere in between. We like to hear from our listeners uh, as often as possible. Send that to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week, SK Mining Corp., Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Eloro Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Fury Gold Mines, Great Bear Resources, and Lion One Metals. I've titled today's show, Investments for This Brave New World. Frank Holmes and Jeff Dice return as guests this week. Trillions of dollars created out of thin air have served to reduce U.S. interest rates towards zero and real interest rates into negative territory. This, combined with lower capital gains taxes, has resulted in the greatest financial gambling casino in history and has taken capital away from productive activities and directed it straight to the Wall Street stock and bond gambling casino. Today, it looks as if the $1.9 trillion so-called relief bill, COVID relief bill, is going to become law. This is just more trillions of dollars on top of previous trillions of dollars created out of thin air that will work its way through the economy and, I believe, lead to rising inflationary pressures, which in turn will cause interest rates to rise. And although stocks are up sharply today, rising rates of uh, the last few couple of weeks or so has led to a much more volatile um, stock and bond market, that is for sure, in the Wall Street uh, gambling casino. 
In just a few minutes, I will be asking Jeff Deist about his thoughts regarding whether rising rates caused by a shortage of savings in the American economy are inclined to lead toward a deflationary environment triggered by a financial market collapse or whether the Fed and other central banks can overcome these deflationary dynamics with countless trillions upon trillions of dollars created mysteriously out of thin air. I also want to ask Jeff his opinion regarding cryptocurrencies and how he thinks governments will respond to the threat of cryptocurrencies to the monopoly powers governments hold over fiat currencies in the banking systems that, uh, of their respective countries. I, I want to ask Jeff that because as a tax lawyer, he certainly has some views on how government is likely to respond. Also, I want to get Jeff's opinion uh, about uh, about cryptocurrencies because after he is after after Jeff is with me, Frank Holmes will join me in the second half of today's show to talk about cryptocurrencies because in fact Frank is actually the interim executive chairman of a company named Hive Blockchain Technologies. Hive actually mines cryptocurrencies including Bitcoin and Ethereum and the company is doing so profitably. This is a very interesting story that I want to uh, learn a lot more about for myself uh, personally as a potential investment uh, and very possibly uh, may cover it in my newsletter. Not sure yet, but that's an idea that I have. In addition to uh, cryptocurrencies, of course, Frank is also extremely well-versed in the precious metals markets with his firm, U.S. Global, managing several mutual funds and a couple of ETFs. So I will certainly want to ask Frank about his views on gold and silver and the mining sector as well uh, when I speak to him during the second half of today's show. Well, I do think that uh, we have a very exciting show today, so I hope that you will stick with me uh, and Frank Holmes in the second half of today's show and with Jeff Deist, who will be with me in just a minute or two, a couple of minutes after our first commercial break, which we're going to take right now. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Jeff Deist to hear his views on the causes of the underlying market instability and his views on cryptocurrencies. I'll be right back with Jeff Deist. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Fury Gold Mines is a Canadian exploration and development company committed to aggressively growing its scalable, high-grade gold assets across its 3.5 million ounce portfolio. Led by a management team of proven explorers and developers, Fury aims to generate major catalysts and performance per share by advancing exploration campaigns across Canada. Fury is well positioned to create value for investors with low risk, development growth, and the potential for a new major discovery. Fury Gold Mines trades on the TSX and NYSE American under Fury. To learn more, go to FuryGoldMines.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Jeff Dice with me today. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. He's also the former chief of staff for Ron Paul when Ron was running for president of the United States. Uh, Jeff is a tax attorney. He is a believer in free market economics. Uh, Of course, he is the president of the Mises Institute, uh, an institute that I highly regard and think that you should pay some attention to. It's Mises.org is the place to go to learn uh, much about uh, free market economics and uh, a lot of very, uh, very intelligent, very well versed free market thinkers that uh, that are there that give their ideas, uh, and Jeff is amongst them, leading the pack. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Excellent, thanks. Good to see you, Jay. It's really good to see you uh, on everybody's mind these days. Um, interest, at least people that are investing in the markets. Interest rates. Interest rates have started to rise. We've had decades of declining interest rates when the Fed has pumped huge amounts of money into the markets, distorting the interest rates, which have really robbed savers and uh, have rewarded those that uh, are able to have access to easy money, uh, enriching themselves. And it has caused all manner of distortions in the markets, as, uh, as the people have been, uh, at the Mises Institute understand very well. We've had, though, recently a rise in the interest rates. Interest rates have started to rise, and I believe, I believe that's occurring because of a shortage of savings overall in the United States. Who wants to buy treasury rates at zero interest rates or close to it, negative in real terms? And so there's a shortage of buyers of interest rates, and um, so the rates have started to, to rise I'm wondering if, if you have a view on that. Uh, do you think, uh, do you believe that we are starting a new interest rate, uh, a new regime of rising interest rates possibly? Uh, do you have any comments on that? Well, interest rates usually go up during depressions. And I think despite all the machinations of central banks around the world and uh, governments on the fiscal side around the world, I think we're in a very serious economic recession, if not depression, brought on, of course, by the government shutdowns. Uh, surrounding COVID. So there's no question that that's putting upward pressure on rates. And look, you know, governments and central bankers can suppress rates with respect to the overnight borrowing, the, the Fed funds rate, for example. They can push sovereign debt into, you know, even nominally negative territory. But when it comes to actual commercial banking, you still have to have creditworthy borrowers. And, and even throughout this huge experiment we've had with Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and Yellen and now Powell, you know, subprime borrowers, the, the poor guy or gal who goes to the rent ascender or who goes to the shady car lot, they've still been paying 20% on their debt or their, or their you know, subprime credit card. They never benefited in the way that the Cantalone effect benefits Wall Street. So you, you still have to have creditworthy borrowers. And as a business practice, commercial banks still have to make a couple of points of profit above their own costs of capital. So uh, I, I, think it, I think it's going up. I think interest rates ought to go up. I think they should go up. I think if central banks got the hell out of the way, they certainly would. Because I, I, I certainly believe that 
capital accumulation is at the heart of, of really what gives us, a, at least on the material side, a civilization worth living in. And people need to be paid money uh, for putting capital at risk. This ultra-low interest rates has caused huge distortions, which you mentioned. I think probably the largest of which, in the United States anyway, has been to push an awful lot of money into equity markets. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's, there's no money to be made in safer and more traditional alternative vehicles. So that, that explains, in my opinion, a lot of, you know, the FANG stocks and the, the Dow and the NASDAQ that we've, I guess, enjoyed over the last decade since the crash. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, people forego the consumption, the pleasures of consumption now need to get paid for it. Otherwise, they won't save. And so we've had this. Massive distortion. So in your view, certainly my view, I, I'm guessing you may agree that we've had a, a massively over overvalued equity market. When interest rates are so low, you know, the, the, the net present value of an investment, uh, it changes things dramatically. So let's say that interest rates start to rise. I mean, Alistair McLeod and others on my show are of the opinion that we that the, that interest rates could get away from the Fed, as you point out, they, the Fed can control the short end of the yield curve to an extent, but longer term, not so much probably, because ultimately, um, you know, people, you, you can't fool Mother Nature forever. So, uh, what do you think? How do you think this might impact the markets, and not only the markets, perhaps uh, the way people behave and live their lives, if in fact interest rates are starting to rise and get out of control of the Fed. Well, obviously, it's frightening because interest rates rising, I think, will go hand in hand with inflation. And I'm talking about real inflation. They've done a good job of hiding it and masking it and BSing us with CPI over the last couple of decades. But if you read the book, When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, you realize just how devastating it is to people, not only economically and financially, but culturally, morally, to live in a time of hyperinflation. I don't think we'll see that. The United States, at least not anytime soon, but nonetheless, it's it's very very severe, and it it changes the way people have to think about everything, and so I think it's going to cause a flight, uh, you know, at first in the cash because uncertainty, like the COVID shutdowns, always causes people to hold more cash. That's called right. the yield for money held, and hut wrote about that extensively. It's nothing to be feared. It has a, a salutary deflationary uh, effect on things uh, to fight all the Fed and central banks' inflationary pressures. So that's a good thing when people hold more money because they don't know what's coming. Will they have a job, uh, for example? So that's salutary. But at some point, if prices really start to rise, all that cash has to go somewhere because people don't want to be holding cash and, and losing money. And, and some people speculate that that's, re, that's what's responsible for, for a lot of movement into certain stocks. That's what's responsible for a lot of movement into Bitcoin, uh, is, is many people's opinion. So, you know, money, money flows regardless of what government bank and central banks try to do in terms of manipulating people. Capital goes where it's treated well. And people aren't going to sit around and accept you know, less than 1% maybe in a money market fund. So what it's going to do is going to turn us into consumers rather than savers, like our grandparents were, for one. And it's going to force us to go out there and chase yields just to, to tread water. And I think that's, a, a, that's the, the hallmark of a very unhealthy society and a very unhealthy economy. 
Yeah, well, it's certainly been true. That's been happening for decades, Jeff, in a growing in a growing degree. Uh, consuming, not savings, and uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's uh, the economist Roach from Yale that talks about these days about the enormous amount of a lack of savings overall. You know, when the United States government goes into debt and borrows, it's true that individuals are saving now because of the, of COVID and the fear of the future, but the government. Uh, overall, our economy as a whole is is way behind the, the curve. We're not saving nearly enough to fund the enormous amount of money that's being created, the debt that's being laid on the on the balance sheets of the Fed and the banks. So something's going to give here, Jeff. Uh, you know, it's hard to know which way it goes, I guess. But as you're, you're hinting at sort of a deflationary possibility, a financial deflationary possibility, I suppose. And then what happens the Fed is going to just start printing even faster, I suppose, right? Isn't that usually what they do? Yes, I think so. I think Alan Greenspan put us on a new path forever and ever. In 1987, the infamous Greenspan put, I think, is really the time when America fundamentally changed financially. Maybe that date, 1987, is even more important than 1971, uh, when foreign uh, foreigners could no longer redeem gold for U.S. dollars. So I really think that that 1987 action by Greenspan told markets that now forever and ever, we're going to effectively put a floor on what you can dump these stocks for. So don't worry, wink, wink, nod, nod, equities are where it's at. And I think that's been, that skewed things in favor of equity markets enormously ever since then. And I think people have responded rationally in a sense to that. Yeah. And what, what worries me so much is just that people aren't going to be able to keep up. I mean, the, the amount of time the average guy or gal can put into uh, watching markets, reading about inflation, caring about what the Fed is doing, it is very, very limited. And even professional traders oftentimes lose their shirts against algorithms and uh, you know, T. Boone Pickens didn't didn't call the huge uh, oil fall a few right. years ago. You know, so it's very very difficult for the average Joe, and it, it forces people to go out there and and try to find ways to survive. And maybe, it, it, you know, if I were smarter, I would make a bet on deflation versus inflation winning out because I just don't know because these things. Uh, re- are, you know, dependent on what billions of people get up every morning and do. They're dependent on central bankers and governments. And so we have these two opposing forces. You know, people are traveling. They aren't going out to eat. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people are staying home. Many people are no longer renting office space. All of that is hugely, enormously deflationary. Supply chains are screwed up. But on the other side, you have governments and central banks using every fiscal and monetary tool at their disposal to... Uh, exert inflationary pressure. So I I don't know how that ends. I don't know how that works. If I did, I suppose I'd be out there with my E-Trade account getting rich. Yeah, well, what, are, what I hear you saying is what we've created through this false monetary system, uh, this fraudulent monetary system, in my view, uh, is a gambling casino, essentially a gambling casino. And those people who have the time, who have the capital, who can sit there and, and you know move money around, are the ones that seem to be getting rich. This distortion of interest rates then has caused money not to go to productive sectors, but to sectors where the rich keep getting richer because they own the casino, essentially. And they are able to become uh, enriched. There's another aspect that you mentioned to me the other day about what we might be looking forward to now uh, with the new Biden administration, and that is 
tax increases on equity uh, earnings, on profits from the stock market. Might that, I uh, would think that would have some impact on how people invest going forward. But as a tax attorney, I'm guessing you have some thoughts about that. Well, during his campaign, Biden certainly, on his own website, demonstrated a preference for raising taxes on capital gains and potentially changing the longstanding tax treatment of carried interest, which is, of course, the basic business model of private equity and venture capital firms to uh, pay capital gains rather than ordinary income rates on the money that uh, those fund managers are pulling out of, of funds. So that would be a sea change. And it would also suggest that maybe going forward, the difference between the tax treatment of income and uh, capital gains is going to be reduced, which might make people more interested in investments with some sort of income stream, like a royalty stream from a mine, for example. But if we go back and think about it, you know, what created this mania mm-hmm. where everything's just a capital gain? If the only reason you buy a stock, which is being becoming an owner of a company, let's not forget, right. used to be to get income. You wanted income from that in the form of a dividend, and then later you might sell the stock and hopefully it a gain, but that wasn't necessarily your primary concern. And so if we... If we get a little more granular, forget investing in a public company on the stock market. What about just starting a business? Let's say uh, uh, an individual wanted to start a dry cleaner or a restaurant in in their town. Well, usually they might go to the local bank and borrow, not issue equity, but borrow uh, $50,000 or something from their credit union. And pretty soon they would need to have actual operating revenue, positive cash flow, not only to service that debt, but to pay themselves. So they'd have to pay off that loan. And, you know, they, they didn't operate a restaurant to just simply make no money and sell it 10 years later or 20 years later with some exit strategy. They, they have kids. Those kids need to eat. They need to pay a mortgage. Maybe they need to go to college. So they needed to pull money out of that restaurant or dry cleaner uh, pretty quickly after starting within, let's say, a year or two. And yet somehow... Because the tax treatment of interest, which is deductible to corporations, versus the tax treatment of dividends, which is generally not deductible to corporations, it really skewed things. So we have this mindset where, hey, I'm just going to buy a stock, and I'm going to hold it for a long time, and I'm going to pay the short-term capital interest rates when I sell it because number go up. Yeah. And Greenspan basically said, yeah, as long as I'm around, number go up. Yeah. So. So it uh, it created what is, in effect, a pyramid or Ponzi scheme where there always has to be a future buyer willing to pay more. Uh, but that's not really a capital market per se. That's not the function of capital markets, which is to allocate capital to its best and highest uses, you know, reward good management, punish bad management. Right. In, instead, it's become this speculative thing where even blue chip companies like Amazon which has been public since the late 90s, can go decades without earning a profit and still see its share price go up and never pay a dividend. No, investors aren't clamoring for dividends. People, Nobody invests in Tesla or Facebook because they want a dividend. So this, this strikes me as a tremendous perversion of what capital markets are supposed to be and do. And I, and I think that we need to, uh, I hope, that collectively as a society, we need to begin to understand why interest rates exist mm-hmm. as signals of a sort, why people should be paid money for saving and investing, and, and why uh, we should actually get back to this, this old-fashioned idea of, you know, you look at your, your, your revenue and you look at your costs at the end of the year and decide whether you had a good year or a bad year, as opposed to just 
All, all these these people, these MBAs, simply looking at the sh- underlying share price of a company. You know, th- this to me is is we use this term very generally, uh, but this to me is the financialization of the economy, and I don't think it's good or healthy. No, not in the real world. And then, of course, the uh, the Greenspan put, which has been succeeded by the every other Federal Reserve chairman's put, means that uh, you know if there's no buyer, there's no if they can't leave the Ponzi scheme stop. So they pump more money into the system so that they're sure to have more buyers to buy these overvalued uh, instruments. So it is a it is a destructive. I believe very much, very very destructive. Uh, but I, I want to thank you, Jeff, because I think you're giving us some ideas about how we should be looking at the real world through the eyes of a free market analyst like yourself. Uh, you know, I've always I think that there are opportunities if you can recognize the pathology of interventionism uh, that is also of value. So I think you're you're helping us in that regard. The idea would be to go back to free market economics, honest monetary system where average people would be playing with an, on an even playing field, where the rich and powerful wouldn't be in a position to continue to get more rich and more powerful and control the monetary, the, uh, the, uh, the political system as well, which I know you're very well aware of as well. Uh, just one more thing, Jeff, before we, uh, before we uh, complete our discussion today. Frank Holmes is coming on right after you on the show, and Frank is – a believer in gold, he's uh, he's got it's the his fund. He has a number of funds that invest in gold mining companies. Uh, he has a couple of ETFs. Uh, he's also involved in cryptocurrencies as well. Frank is involved in a company that is mining Ethereum, and a public company is actually making money doing so. Um, very interesting story. Uh, but I know you have some thoughts as a tax attorney, as someone who knows what governments can do with law and tax law. Uh, how do you think governments are likely to treat cryptocurrencies that might be seen as uh, competing against their fiat currency system? Well, they're going to react badly, I think, for starters. We've already seen Elizabeth Warren open her pie hole just the other day about cryptos, and we've seen Janet Yellen say some very dumb things. Uh, I'll only speak to Bitcoin because that's the only uh, crypto that, that I care about or think about or study and, and personally invest in. And I get a lot of grief from the Bitcoin community because I'm still old-fashioned about gold. I think those two things can be actually complementary. I think they can coexist. And I'm not quite ready to just throw it out the window after thousands and thousands and thousands of years of never going to zero, which you can't say about any stock or currency or company, for example. Uh, So I get a lot of grief from the young guys in their 20s and gals uh, who are, of course, convinced that Bitcoin will make gold obsolete. Maybe it will. I'm not smart enough to predict the future, but I will say that I think governments are going to do what they can. Let's hope uh, that the uh, uh, that the the blockchains work in its in a decentralized enough fashion that as long as there is uh, good internet somewhere, as long as there's electricity capability somewhere, that um, governments are going to have a hard time seizing or corralling or regulating or controlling Bitcoin. It remains to be said. I will say they'll probably do everything in their power. Uh, and maybe that means rather than confronting it head on with, let's say, criminal uh, uh, prosecution, maybe they'll try to co-opt it and do a shady end run through the IMF or some similar agency uh, developing its own uh, digital currency or cryptocurrency. So that, to me, is a real danger. And I certainly hope that people don't fall 
uh, for this nonsense because they used to talk about special drawing rights yep. and a, a new global reserve currency using a basket. And that basket was just designed to get political compliance because they'd include the dollar, they'd include the Chinese yuan, etc. Uh, th- these people are nefarious. They're up to no good. And whatever they try to do in the digital or crypto space, uh, I wouldn't trust him as far as I can throw him. Yeah, so I think that's wise advice. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's, uh, your insights are always appreciated. And it's reasons.org where people need to go to gain the insights of the free market Austrian economic theories. Thank you, Jeff, for being with us. All right. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Frank Holmes. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSXV and GTBAF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their district scale Dixie project in the renowned Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having made multiple high-grade near-surface gold discoveries, GBR's capital efficiency has allowed them to be fully funded to complete a very active 300,000-meter drill program through 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last three years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Frank Holmes with me once again. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Frank, I think most of you most likely are, but he is he has led the U.S. global investors since 1989 as CEO and uh, CIO. Frank's, Frank is most certainly a creative thinker uh, with an open mind to new opportunities, which is why he is not only devoted to precious metals investments and miners of precious metals, but he is also involved as the interim executive chairman of a company that mines cryptocurrencies. That's a very interesting company named Hive Blockchain Technologies, trades in Toronto under the symbol HIVE, I believe, and in the U.S. uh, under HBBTF. U.S. Global has several funds that uh, focus on regional markets and on resource markets, including the precious metals. Uh, And Frank has also established a couple of very interesting ETFs, one of them investing in gold mining, that's uh, GoAU, G-O-A-U on the New York Stock Exchange, and the other very interesting opportunity, an airline ETF, also trades on the New York Exchange, JETS, J-E-T-S is a symbol. And uh, Frank writes a very interesting and informative weekly letter that is available free of charge to investors by simply signing up at uh, usfunds.com. Uh, and you can follow a couple of his Twitter accounts as well. I believe it's U.S. Funds and 
Bulldog Homes. Uh, and just before we came on the show, I noticed that there is an invitation to join a webcast uh, tomorrow, this March 10th, at 2 o'clock New York time. Uh, and the topic will be gold mining equities and, and the Hive blockchain technologies. Frank, I'm, I'm so happy you could join me today. Thanks. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Hey, Jay. It's great to be with you again. And tomorrow is about the debate. Uh, there's this big de debate of exclusivity, one against the other, and uh, hopefully the thesis will be they can be inclusive. Uh, we were supposed to have a society that's culturally more inclusive. Well, so should be these asset classes. I couldn't agree with you more. But let me ask you, is Peter Schiff going to be there? No, no, no. He's, he's <laughs> not at all. And his okay. partner, and his partner uh, Roy C. Bag has made all of his money only in crypto. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and it, they hate crypto, but that's where they made their money. Uh, well, that is kind of funny. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Frank, you know, I I want to get your views on interest rates and how that may impact various equity markets and ask you about gold and airlines, your airline ETF, and some of those more traditional topics that we talked to you about. Uh, but with regard to blockchain, we had Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute on right a few minutes ago. Uh, he is very much a believer in gold as money, he, but he told our listeners a few minutes ago that he sees room for both gold and cryptocurrencies to exist. In other words, inclusivity, as you're talking about. And I'm obviously, you agree with that. Um, could you comment on how they might coexist and how they might actually work uh, in harmony with each other? Well, gold is the fourth most liquid asset in the world, and, and gold is in tremendous value in a very small space. Uh, and, and gold, uh, once it's made into beautiful jewelry, you don't, do not need electricity. Uh, Bitcoin, you need electricity. So we have to think about that. And a couple of weeks ago, we had these rolling blackouts in Texas, and uh, I can fit to see what happens. We have no electricity, and it's frightfully cold outside. But it's really, to me, it's important to recognize they're both alternative asset classes for a lot of investors. And Bitcoin is digital and it is highly volatile. But most interesting is Tesla is more volatile than gold, Bitcoin, and Ethereum over one day trading or 10 days trading. Uh -huh. so I, I think that when you look at these disruptive industries such as Tesla's and, and the Bitcoins and the Zooms uh, of the world, uh, they, they're, they're disrupting the normal process that are out there and they provide opportunity. You just can't eat a whole plate full of jalapenos. Uh, they'll wreck the dish. They can add flavor to it. And that's the way I look at alternative asset classes. And I think the, a lot of young people are the first to adapt to Bitcoin Ethereum through the Robin Hoods and the PayPals, et cetera, allow you to get fractals of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important part of that. And you're younger, you can take bigger risks. Mm -hmm. uh, but gold's not going to go away. Uh, gold is will always be a key component. And gold for the past 20 years, it was up 80% of the time. Last year, it outperformed the S&P 500 again. It was up a nice 25% for a big liquid asset class uh, that's pretty stable because the, the DNA volatility of gold is the same as the S&P 500. But it's outperformed in 20 years, the S&P by 250%. Mm-hmm. So I don't think gold goes away, and I've always advocated this 10% golden rule uh, of gold and, and or high-quality gold, uh, quality gold stocks and rebalance, but 
Bitcoin, Ethereum, it's it's more speculative and having a 2% weighting in this in a portfolio uh, because you see something, a transformation taking place uh, in an economy that's disruptive, like Uber disrupted the, the limo business. Sure. Uh, that's what we're in. Well, creative destruction, uh, I think it was Schumpeter who came up with that notion and it certainly is alive and well and we do need to adapt to some of us older folks it's more difficult and as you say the younger folks have more time to recoup if they're wrong uh, but but I guess gold really uh, provides a uh, it reduces the volatility of a portfolio then uh, to a great extent and as you pointed out I think it was gold has actually outperformed Warren Buffett over the last since since this turn of the century so uh, you know <laughs> people yes. don't realize how well gold just owning gold not the gold shares necessarily, but just oh yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, Franco Nevada has crushed Berkshire Hathaway in the past decade. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that's one of your favorites. Uh, those royalty and streaming companies, and maybe we'll get to that. I, I think you've answered my question, Frank, in terms of what caused you to uh, to get involved in cryptocurrencies. I think you just basically answered that. You're, so you're what happened to me? What happened to me was I was trying to launch an ETF. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin ETF. And uh -huh. I quickly recognized, and rightfully so, the concerns the SEC had of anti-money laundering laws, that some crypto was de dealt with in the dark world and all of a sudden showed up in the New York Stock Exchange. The same thing was with Canada. They had this great concern. But software now is able to find out if any coin has ever been in the dark part of the world, actually better than they can cash U.S. dollars, $100 uh -huh. bills. It's easier to track Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been on the dark side of the world. But I, I think that I had this knowledge. It wasn't going anywhere. And along came this opportunity. And so I said, well, when you mine, when you're a miner, you actually, every 10 minutes for Bitcoin, you validate a transaction. You get a brand new virgin coin. It's never been touched. There's no AML concern. There's no KYC. You are the creator of that nugget of gold, that mm -hmm. crypto gold, if you want to call it. So I became very fascinated with it, and I saw tremendous volatility like gold. I also saw that you can get massive gross profit margins, and they can contract rapidly, and you can have huge revenue per employee. So that reminded me of a royalty company. So we put up the, the institutional money, the first $5 million, immediately raised $30 million, and Hyde was the first crypto mining company. Other people followed suit behind it. Uh, last year, it traded 2.4 billion shares in Canada and the U.S. over the counter and in Germany. Uh, it outperformed. Bitcoin was up 300% last year. Uh, gold was up, we said, to like 25%. Uh, so Bitcoin did outperform because they halved it. The supply of Bitcoin mining every 10 minutes was halved last May. So what would you think would happen to gold, I tell people, if the supply was halved overnight? Oh, if it cool. 90 million, 100 million ounces to 50 million, gold would be at 10,000. So I, I think that that's what took place to understand that, that crypto world. And, and so what we're seeing is that Hive, it has these massive gross profit margins as Bitcoin Ethereum went up. Ethereum was up almost 470% and we had record profits. So, so far in the nine months, we're the most profitable crypto mining company. Uh, I think cumulatively we made $28 million. And, uh, and now we've expanded the future with opportunities for growth that'll take us what they call 2,400 petahash of mining Bitcoin. We are the only miner of Ethereum on an industrial scale. Mm -hmm. We also bank the coins. So what happened, Jay, is that there was this audience of gold investors that were reluctant to go to a crypto exchange 
open account with all the negative news. So Hive became their proxy. Ah. And and so there's a lot of a crossover saying, okay, I want to be in the space, but you know, I'll buy ten thousand dollars worth of uh, Hive, and uh-huh. that will be my my proxy on Bitcoin Ethereum. And it grew with enthusiasm. What we have also done, we outperformed the other companies uh, last year, is because we were very con- uh, thoughtful of the number of shares outstanding. So mm-hmm. other companies like Riot uh, went from 25 million to 75 million shares outstanding, and Marathon, uh, M-A-R-A, it went from, I think, 10 million to 80 million shares, massive dilution. But these companies had massive appeal in the capital markets because they're mining in America Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Hive's next journey is also only green. We're only green energy, uh, which is very important strategy. Some of the other ones have coal. Uh, most of the Bitcoin mining in the world today is China, which is coal. We're, we're only green. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's obviously of great concern to a lot of people. Um, so you did, I mean, you, you had a, your, your history then, Frank, your operating history with this company is only nine months. Or how, what is it, how far well, back does it I, go? I was the first, Jay, company to come out to crypto mining. Mm-hmm. It was public. It was usually private entities. Yes. And it came out in September of 2017. Uh-huh. And, it, and it went up to a billion dollar market cap. And then it fell during the 2019 dramatically, just like Bitcoin went from 19000 down to 3000 Ethereum went from 1400 down to $80. Uh, now, you know, they've all rebounded dramatically and Bitcoin's made all-time new highs. So we've seen the cryptocurrencies move up with it because they're very profitable today. Mm-hmm. Well, you were producing, uh, I, I read your, um, your your quarterly financials that just came out. Uh, I think you earned five cents or so per share for the quarter, Frank, I believe. Is that it? And, Correct. And something like 12 cents perhaps over nine months. So. Uh, you know, on a share price, it's, I don't know, four, $4 in U.S. money, four and a half or so today, I think I saw it. Um, so, you're, but you stopped producing Bitcoin. Was that because it became too expensive or, or why did you stop? Um, we went through something very unfortunate. Uh, we went through a, a proxy battle in 2019, which lasted about a quarter. It never went for the full battle and we resolved everything. We took control from the largest shareholder um, that was the original uh, company that Genesis Mining we that partner with, uh, and we took control of the costs because the costs were out of control with them, mm-hmm. and that's what we did. And uh, we dropped the cost dramatically. Uh, there was basically three of us: uh, Tobias Ebel in Europe, uh, Darcy uh, Deveris, uh, who's our CFO, and myself. Uh, we basically got control and started uh, this new vision, and we started expanding in Canada. We're in Quebec. We bought last year during March uh, 30 megawatts of capacity, and now we're just closing New Brunswick for 50 megawatts of capacity. Uh, today, uh, I think by the end of this quarter, we should have about 120 megawatts of um, 130 megawatts of capacity going to 150 megawatts. Okay, and uh, I guess your your other uh, your existing facilities are in Sweden and Iceland. Yes, and hydro, hydro energy in Sweden and in uh-huh. Canada, and geothermal in Iceland. Okay, sure, that makes sense. Uh, 
being and it's all stranded electricity, Jay. You know, it's none of this. Uh, the real polluters of this world, when you hear about Bitcoin, is is predominantly China and Kazakhstan. Anyone that's involved with Kazakhstan, it's coal, and in China, Inner Mongolia, it's coal, and it's definitely pollution to the air. Uh, we are focused on where there's um, surplus pockets of electricity that does it, that's inexpensive and does not impair. Like in Sweden, we locked in 1.7 cents a megawatt. Uh, it's very, very inexpensive. For sure. Absolutely. And um, does Hive, then, does it inventory hold these, um, the Ethereum and the Bitcoin yes. uh, for appreciation? Or does it sell some of it? Or how does it? Uh, it, like, it the Rob, like the Rob McEwen old days when he had Gold mm -hmm. Corp, he kept the gold because it was too uh, cheap too to cheap. sell. Yeah, and, uh, and we have over forty million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and Ethereum on our balance sheet, and it grows every day. Frank, you have uh, you're very lean, as you say. Um, you, your your costs are very low. You don't have that many people, right? You you no. alluded to that earlier. Very you saw it as a, like a royalty company. <laughs> and if you look at next year, this time we would have say ten employees, and we would be doing a Bitcoin at this price. Uh, close to 250 million in revenue, uh, and the cash flow, if it existed to like a performa, forward-looking, it always has its risk, but if it was the sort of perfect world of all those machines that we've ordered and paid for, we're mining today, uh, we would be doing close to $25 million of revenue per employee. That's like, um, I would say, when you look at uh, royalty companies. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's pretty cool. I, I would imagine you're what mostly engineers or or what kind of people do you electrical do? engineers? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, coders, people that know how to code software. Mm -hmm. uh, we have state of the art software in Sweden where we can tool down our consumption of electricity, uh, and we do it at peak periods. If the local area gets stress, that we will help out the local hydro company. Uh, so that therefore uh, we're very, very caught up with being helpful to the community. So the software is much faster than uh, having you know an extra 100 megawatts to, to turn it on. It takes an hour to turn it up the electricity. We can turn it on a dime. That's uh, pretty amazing. I, what about um, Ethereum? Uh, is there a limit to the number that can be uh, mined? There is a limit, but it's not as definitive. Uh, it starts to shrink and shrink over time, but like Bitcoin is very, very black and white uh, when it ends. So that's a big difference. And for your listeners, uh, I recommend you Google what's called Metcalf's Law, and that really basically explains why we've had this massive surge in crypto. Just like our Jets ETF this time last year was $35 million, it's now $4 billion. It used to trade 30 35,000 shares a day, now it trades 3.5 million a day. Wow. And it all started with millennials coming in, playing yeah. the rebound in the airlines, because historically, a year after a crisis, they rebound 80 to 120%. Uh, this sort of brought in bigger investors because there's more liquidity. Price discovery is very important. What's happened with Bitcoin and Ethereum through Robinhood and through PayPal last year, you can buy a fractal. You don't have to go and spend, buy one coin for 50000 yeah. You buy a tenth of a coin for uh, $5,000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, and that has allowed more and more people to come in and speculate on higher Bitcoin Ethereum prices. Now, Ethereum is what's called a smart contract. 
and Ethereum is very important for the protocol, like the bottom of this, this whole bear cycle in 2019 took place when JP Morgan launched their crypto st stable coin, and that's on the backbone of Ethereum. So the faster and more of these stable coins come out by the big banks, the more Ethereum they're going to use, the higher the Ethereum price. And this proof of stake over proof of mining, which we do, uh, uses much, basically absorbs a five billion dollars with the Ethereum coin. So we see, like the silver market, the shrinking supply yeah. of silver. We're seeing it with Ethereum, which is projecting a higher price. And it's silver is needed for solar energy. Twenty percent of demand is for solar energy. Ethereum is all the backbone for DeFi and stable coins. So we, I see lots of overlaps between Bitcoin being like gold and Ethereum being like silver. Interesting. What about uh, some other uh, cryptocurrencies, for example? I think Litecoin is one that's out there. Is there are there prospects that you might mine other? Uh, no, no. Like we we did some, but we're so big, Jay. Now, like mm -hmm. we're a big company, and uh, and and so if we turn on megawatts of of something else that has a market cap of $500 million, then we would all of a sudden be a major force. And you can't be more than 50% of the production, otherwise it loses its decentralization and its independence. So we have to be very cognizant of that. So where we have the flexibility and capacity is clearly Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're the two big workhorses of the world. Uh, Bitcoin is is the monetary end. Smart contracts is Ethereum, which is if you want to down the road, you'll see insurance contracts being put on that smart contract. Uh, you'll see lots of things being embedded within the Ethereum design. Frank, you mentioned you've got a couple of new projects being built, being constructed. I guess you will have in, I think you said Quebec and New Brunswick. What sort of uh, capital costs are involved? Well, they've gone up dramatically, Jay. There's a shortage right now of chips worldwide. We're seeing in the car industry. Uh -huh. Yes. We're seeing the unexpected consequences of uh, COVID, uh, disruptive of supply lines. Shipping costs have gone from 2,000 a container to 7,000. Monthly shipping, holding, retaining has gone up 12-fold. So the whole concept that there's actually a shortage of equipment. And, and so if you want to go buy a, a, a ASIC miner, you would say I would be paying $20 a, a, a theta hash. Well, now it's going to cost me 100 So it's going to fivefold. Uh, we've been very fortunate of being able to lock in uh, very attractive pricing from different providers. We want to make sure that we never had sort of diversify where we're mining from. We want to make sure the sources of where we're getting our equipment. Most of it comes from, oh, it comes from China. Uh, where it's manufactured, so you get the Samsung and Taiwanese chips going into the manufacturers of, of these equipment. So we predominantly use AMD and uh, NVIDIA, predominantly AMD chips uh, for mining uh, Ethereum and ASIC chips for mining Bitcoin. So you're, uh, you've done very, very well. I see that your, your income during the third quarter, uh, ending December 31st, 2020, uh, 13.7 million or 174% higher than the like period of 2019. You're coming on, as I understand it, with a couple of more facilities. What kind of growth might we anticipate going forward? I know it's a forward-looking statement. You have to be careful. But so we have purchased the equipment that would take that takes us from about 400 petahash this time last year, or 300, went from zero to 350, 400. We're going to 2,400. 
So we're talking about a six-bagger increase in our Bitcoin production profile. Wow. Okay. Well, this is very exciting, and, and uh, obviously people can, uh, it's a public company, so they can track this if they're interested, and uh, we look forward to it, and uh, I guess people should tune in also to your uh, to your webcast tomorrow as well. We've got, we, and how can people do that, Frank? I just couple. go to usfunds.com and log on, and, and uh, I'll see you there. Okay, but we have a couple more minutes yet, Frank, so don't leave. I just wanted to make sure I got that question in for you. Uh, just looking at the gold shares, then, what, what's your take on on gold on the uh, gold mining sector right now? It is, certainly hasn't uh, been one of the more exciting things. I sort of think that maybe uh, maybe the cryptocurrencies have uh, co-opted the gold and gold share sector. But uh, obviously, you're bullish on gold, as you said. You explained why. But um, how's your fund doing? How, not your fund, your ETF, GoAU. How's that doing? What is always said, Jay, when you first talked about it in our first interview, it, it modeled to outperform the GDXJ. Um, it, back testing when we launched it um, three years, almost four years ago this summer, uh, that it outperformed 90% of the time in rolling 12-month periods because it's very selective of the stocks it picks. 30% are royalty companies. The other ones have to have revenue growth last quarter or four quarters, cash flow. We love free cash flow. Gets an extra tick of the box on that quant approach. Uh, it, it's outperformed. It's done exactly what it said it would do, even after fees. It's outperformed the GDXJ, and uh, we're happy with that for the past year, the past three mm -hmm. years since we launched it. And I think going forward, uh, a touch wood, I hope that discipline that the model uses uh, will con continue. Uh, we've Gold is interesting because the PMI, the Pershing Manufacturers Index, which we track and write about every month in my blog, you know, it's on a tear when you have China and America. Europe is still trying to climb its way out of, of below 50, but China and America are very strong, and that's why copper is at all-time highs here past mm -hmm. uh, uh, nine years. Uh, and I think it's going to take out the 20-year uh, uh, high. Uh, as the cycle goes on with all this green spending because you're going to need copper. Mm -hmm. The PMI, Purchasing Manufacturers Index, is a great leading indicator of global economic growth. It's on a tear. Mm -hmm. So two is shipping is on a tear. So this is all positive. Yep. What is spooky is the 10-year yield, the 10-year government bond, went from basically 50 basis points up to 160 basis points. That's a 300% increase. So that, that's like a rocket ship going off uh, straight up. It's not like an airplane taking off. This is a rocket ship, and that usually causes a financial crisis somewhere. Uh, we think anytime it's up three standard deviations over 60 trading days, over the next 60 trading days, the mathematical odds of mean reversion are high, extremely high. When it corrects, we think gold then rockets back to the 2000 level. We still believe in the next three years gold is going to $4,000 based on the global G20 money printing and the negative interest rate scenario. Um, but this is part of that. It happened a big surge last year. It happened the year before. There was a nine-month surge. Last year, there was an eight-month surge in the price of gold. Then you get this sort of correction. I think we'll get the next leg. Well, it certainly is exciting, no doubt about it. Uh, I guess with two minutes yet, I want to ask you just to have you touch on your Jets ETF. Um, are we back now? I mean, I haven't gotten on a plane since last uh, since this time last year, actually, when I flew back from San Francisco. But are we? Uh, how's the airlines industry doing, and how's Jets doing? 
Jets is doing remarkably well. The airlines are still trying to get to that break-even level. Um, we had this big run last year at the very bottom of April the 15th, less than 90,000 people a day were being cleared by the TSA. TSA publishes this daily. Uh -huh. and, uh, and it soared to uh, 1.3 million. Now, what happened is a year ago, prior to the crisis, America was clearing 2.7 million passengers a day. 700,000 were inbound from Europe, Asia, and Latin America. That fell down to less than 90,000. Then it soared back to 1.3 million, and uh, that's predominantly domestic flights. And uh, we still have got a long way to go. We fell below a million. Now we're above that 50-day moving average. Uh, the vaccines are improving. Uh, people are getting better, like more and more people are getting the vaccine. And you're starting to see tourism. So business travel is not there like it used to be. And I think it's going to take another six months before we start getting a torque up in business travel. But but. Tourism is huge. Now Southwest Airlines is flying nonstop from Phoenix to Cabo St. Lucas. Mm -hmm. uh, you're seeing small cities in New York State, Illinois, Indiana flying south. People mm -hmm. want to get some sunshine. So right. I remain pretty positive. I think that Europe in the next two months will get a big opening, and that will be a big rebound for the airlines. All right. Well, I hope you're right um, for sure because I'm looking to make that trip to Portugal with my wife sometime soon. Frank, and, uh, and just get out and move again. I, I really miss that. I know most people do. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Frank, for spending time with us. Lots of very interesting things you told us today. Uh, and we'll look forward to keeping up with your hive and various other things you're doing going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, Michael Oliver, Chris Powell of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, uh, and an executive from Firefox Gold will be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 